Sappy Music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, November 8th, 2011. Now, just a warning, this is not our light edition this week, but we're dealing with a singular topic, so everything's going to be themed on that one topic. So, um... All I can say is uh, you're going to need to take notes on this edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's going to be heady, (laughs) especially the last half. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare What people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the biblical work. We trust Jesus' opinion of the Bible because, well, he proved that he was God in human flesh by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified for our sins. So to have a view of Scripture that, well, uh, is at odds with Jesus' view of Scripture is really, really unwise. Just not smart at all. In fact, uh, that basically is like saying you know better than Jesus, and since you're not God in human flesh, you you don't know better than Jesus. So, all right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And to do that, I've got to use our music for, well, this type of uh, um, segment here at Fighting for the Faith. The whole program is practically the segment. So here we go. Let's dive in. She loves the monkey's uncle, oh yeah! She loves the monkey's uncle, whoa, whoa! She loves the monkey's uncle, and the monkey's uncle say for me. I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves the monkey's uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves the monkey's uncle. Love all his monkeys. The monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle they for me. They for me. Uh-huh. She loves a monkey's uncle, yeah, yeah. She loves a monkey's uncle, whoa, whoa. She loves a monkey's uncle. And the monkey's uncle they for me. All right, yeah, that's the Beach Boys and Annette Finicello. Uh, 
and their song, The Monkey's Uncle. Anyway, so that signals what we're going to be talking about today on uh, Fighting for the Faith, and we're going to be talking about, well, uh, evolution, if you would, and uh, we're going to be doing this in three different segments, okay? And you can, in fact, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith will be entitled The Bankrupt uh, Theology of Biologos, and, uh, you know, th that's what it's going to be called, the bankrupt theology of biologos. Now, to, uh, to achieve this understanding of how, uh, biologos' attempts to basically capitulate to evolutionary theory, we're going to listen to three different resources today. The first is a, uh, just was this morning, um, at uh, chapel at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Albert Muller, Chad Brand, Jim Hamilton, Thomas Schreiner, and Stephen Wellum. They all did a, a panel discussion regarding Adam and the gospel and it, asking the question, is a historical Adam necessary? We're going to start there. We're going to then segue into a short little segment from Ken Ham uh, from Answers in Genesis on how death is actually our enemy, you know, talking about the evils of death. And, and then we're going to listen to a lecture by the man who taught me how to uh, basically think scientifically and overcome uh, the ideas of evolutionary theory. And that's uh, the late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. And the name of his lecture is The Seven Postulates of Evolution. Now, um, I've, uh, in fact, I'm thinking about playing uh, a few more of uh, Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith's lectures in the future because here's the deal. As you're listening to... Uh, Albert Muller and his panel discussion there at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary this morning on Is a Historical Adam Necessary? Uh, keep in mind that what you're going to hear in this lecture is them mentioning and discussing, but not necessarily flat or openly refuting scientifically the concept of, uh, of, uh, of a primal pair, if you would, Adam and Eve. Uh, and uh, instead, they're going to mention the fact that current evolutionary theory is is that there were probably close to several thousand maybe upwards of 10,000 or more primal pairs that all evolved at the same time um and that's what they're claiming you know that this is what evolutionary scientists are claiming now now the reason I'm putting AE Wilder Smith's lecture in here regarding the seven postulates of evolutionary theory is because um that is like well in from you know in discussing evolutionary theory that's like starting in the middle of the story if you would um um and so uh keep in mind evolutionary theory has its own concept of genesis okay um and uh, and the thing is is that it the, the genesis story in evolutionary theory doesn't begin when uh supposedly human beings evolved from our primate ancestors. No, 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 no. Um, evolution actually has a postulate, you know, a, 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 an idea talking about what they call biogenesis, the beginning of biological living matter, okay, as opposed to, you know, just sterile, dead, you know, matter. And so uh, the reason I picked Dr. Wilder Smith's uh, le lecture is because he discusses uh, uh, the the problems of the concept of biogenesis. So, um, and so, yeah, it's in, that that's the reason I'm putting this lecture in at the tail end because, um, yeah, Doctor Muller, I I love him to death, and he's a great theologian. Okay, he's a theologian that uh, one should not cross swords with. 
unless one really truly prays about doing so because he's he's well studied works hard obviously knows his stuff and he doesn't attempt at at this point to step outside of his uh, discipline that being theology in this in this discussion so this is a theological and biblical critique of biologos's approach and the reason i put ae wilder smith's lecture in is because he's a scientist and uh and uh Let's just put it this way. When he was alive, evolutionary scientists did not want to debate A.E. Wilder Smith. He was he was uh, he who must not be named or debated because he was that good at what he did. And so, uh, you know, that's so anyway, when you think of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, you kind of have to look at it as a story that's unfolding. We got a good theological biblical critique of of uh, of a concept we've uh, we've got a transition from using Ken Ham talking about death and uh, and how it's not a good thing and then Dr. AE Wilder Smith showing how the seven main postulates of evolutionary theory aren't even scientific and he takes on this concept of biogenesis the spontaneous uh basically coming to life of inanimate matter into living i uh, into living beings and boy does he do a good job and so i put him in there to help shore up uh what uh, dr muller and uh, his uh colleagues uh, uh did this morning at southern baptist theological seminary so without any further ado here is uh dr albert muller uh chad brand jim hamilton uh, and uh and thomas Schreiner and stephen wellham and their uh panel discussion, Adam and the Gospel, Is a Historical Adam Necessary? Here we go. Well, thank you for coming this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to pray that you will bless and superintend the conversation that we believe is a conversation of importance, indeed some urgency. Father, we pray that all that we say and do during this hour will reflect your truth and your character. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome you to this panel discussion here at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The issue is the historical Adam, Adam and the gospel. Just how important or essential is the historical Adam? This is a question that in some sense has been raised within the church and talked about within theological and biblical circles since the advent of Darwinism in the 19th century. But more recently, the conversation has entered evangelical neighborhoods where with a great deal of interest and with some degree of surprise, some evangelicals have come to understand that where many evangelicals or perhaps uh, very vocal and well-publicized evangelicals are moving is towards not only the question as to whether Adam is really necessary, but to a position, a worldview that requires them to say that given the data that has come to us now, there could be no historical Adam. We're very glad to have here on this platform today uh, guests, Dr. Tom Schreiner, Dr. Chad Brand, Dr. James Hamilton, and Dr. Stephen Wellen, who are here with me to have this conversation. We're very glad to have a conversation about something that each one of us believes is a matter of tremendous gospel urgency and a question that requires some pretty careful definition. Now, as we begin this, we come to understand that the more recent and urgent questions related to Adam have come about because of the discovery or the 
the, uh, the tracing out of the human genome and certain genomic information. So all of a sudden, we're now being told that the genomic diversity of the human race is, is so massive that it is virtually impossible in genomic terms, in terms of the knowledge that would come to us by modern science and its findings in biology, that there could have been an historical primal pair from whom all human beings are descended. We are also told that that necessitates a re-reading, a, a revisionist interpretation, a new understanding, not only, of course, of Genesis, but as much of the New Testament as well. We're here to talk about whether or not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ really requires an understanding of an historical Adam. Now, let me begin with an historical question. In terms of the history of Christian theology and biblical interpretation, when did it first arise that people would ask the question as to whether or not there was an historical Adam? That has to be a truly modern question, is it not? Tom? Well, I think it is a modern question. I haven't traced out the exact date, but the early church fathers, the medieval Christians, reformed Christians, they all assumed a historical Adam. I looked at the Council of Orange, 529 AD, where Adam is first mentioned in a confessional statement. Of course, he was always assumed, but it's just assumed that he's historical. I think because scripture is clear. Well, that raises a very interesting question. Why would anyone assume what data would be presented to us that would lead us to ask the question as to whether Adam really is historical? A plain reading of scripture, both in terms of Genesis and in terms of the New Testament, would simply lead Christians to believe that, of course, Adam is historical. He's presented not only in the Genesis, Genesis narratives, he's presented in, in one of the genealogies of Christ. He, he is presented by Paul as the first Adam, by which we come to understand the ministry of the second Adam. So the point I'm making here is that we're only asking this question. We're only going back to the scriptures with this imperative that is urged upon us by others to reinterpret and revisit our interpretation because of data that's come from outside the scripture. And that data, well, we mentioned the fact that it's more recently genomic in terms of its specific content, but it really goes back to the very advent of Darwinism, to the, to the origins of evolutionary theory. Chad, where did the urgency come when at least some came to look at the scripture and say, I guess there really wasn't an historical Adam? Well, of course, ev evolutionary th theory goes back long before Darwin. Lamarck and others had advocated that. What the 1859 book did was to give a, a kind of specificity biologically for evolution. And then if you begin to look at the writings of theologians, uh, particularly continental and British theologians, in the aftermath of 1859, they seem to be in a frenzy almost to fall over, all over themselves to find some way to reconcile their interpretation of the text with Darwin's supposedly assured results of, of biological criticism. And uh, there was a, a sort of a compulsion for that, especially among Cambridge and Oxford theologians and certainly those on the continent. Uh, they felt the need to, uh, to continue to be theologians writing to a contemporary culture and a contemporary world, and they wanted to be relevant to that and not look as though somehow they were behind the eight ball. And of course, uh, scientific criticism, biblical criticism, goes back to the late uh, 18th century. And so this, this was just a furtherance of a kind of impetus that had been there for some time. Well, it seems to me it was the intersection of several things as well. Some of the historians of evolutionary theory 
especially in the 19th century, point out that even though there were evolutionary precursors, even Darwin's own grandfather uh, had, uh, had some theory of evolution, human beings are kind of reserved as a special case. It, it, the evolutionary theory, so long as it had to do only with lower levels of life and, and less sophisticated levels of life, uh, we're not so threatening to biblical interpretation. It, it's when in the larger culture, now, the, the full weight of Darwinism comes with the understanding that this requires a very different understanding of human origins and thus of human status, that it, we had to go back to the human story that, it, that is found in Scripture, and thus the head-on collision between what we might call some version of evolutionary theory and biblical interpretation really comes at the midpoint and, and after that. Uh, in the 19th century. By the time you come to the 20th century, there's been a settling out of sorts on the question of evolution, and, and you have a great divide historically where you have more liberal Protestants, for instance, who have embraced evolutionary theory and uh, amidst a larger project of, of theological revisionism have come to terms with Darwinism. What makes it interesting is that now all of a sudden we seem to have reached a delayed fuse moment in evangelicalism. Now it's as if evangelicals who, who just coasted through uh, the 20th century now all of a sudden have said, oh, look at all this data. It, it, it's like the early Protestants at the end of the 19th century. Oh, this is going to require us to go back to the Bible and rethink all of this. In terms of the evangelical literature, it really has only been in the last two years or so that this question has arisen with, with such volatility and, and with such candor. You have, uh, for instance, the emergence of websites such as Biologos, uh, and, and you have some rather well-known figures who have taught in evangelical seminaries and evangelical schools who are simply saying the time has come to, uh, to state the obvious, and, and that is that what we now know from science means no Adam, no Eve, but as we shall see also, no innocence, no fall. We have to re-render the entire story. Jim, just how important is this? Just at this point in our conversation, just given what we have on our agenda right now, how important is this conversation? Well, I think that what we have in the Bible and what we have in evolutionary theory are alternative accounts of the origin and existence of all things. And to try to synthesize, as Pete N. says he wants to do, evolution with Christianity would be a little, to my thinking, like chopping off the first scene of the first Star Wars movie and replacing it with the first scene of Sleepless in Seattle. It's going to destroy the story. It's going to affect everything. And, and, and so I don't know how you maintain the, the biblical storyline if you replace Genesis 1 and 2 with evolution. And, and Pete Enns has said on his, on his, web, on his blog, Someone sent me this quote from a, a blog post that dealt with talking to pastors about evolution. He says, frankly, we, we have to acknowledge that the moment we embrace evolution, we've moved away from the biblical worldview. And, and I, I would argue that what we're trying to do is articulate and embrace and, and live in the biblical worldview. Mr. Wellham, Steve, evangelicals in kind of a parallel movement over the last 20 years or so, have learned to speak of the biblical meta-narrative, have learned to speak of the gospel in terms of a larger canonical, covenantal understanding of, of God's work to save sinners. 
And so evangelicals have grown more and more accustomed to an accountability to a story of creation and fall and redemption and consummation. Did we get it wrong? Well, to answer whether we got it wrong, we have to first start with, you know, how the scripture, scripture puts that together. And if we follow first what the Bible says regarding itself, how it presents itself to us, we didn't get it wrong. Uh, the Bible begins at creation. It establishes the fall. Uh, there's no reason internally within the Bible to say that this is not history. Uh, it then speaks of God's plan of redemption already anticipated in Genesis 3.15, works itself out across history to the coming of Christ and ultimately looking forward to the consummation. Those who um, have an alternative view are undermining that entire framework. Right? I mean, that's, that's the serious nature of this. This isn't just you know, a point of interpretation of what do we do with Genesis you know, 1 to 11 or Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, it is the entire fabric of the entire revelation from Genesis 2 revelation that is ultimately being undercut, unraveled, uh, and undermined. And behind that, obviously, are huge other theological areas, assumptions, uh, you know, one's view of God, creation, doctrine of Scripture, on and on and on. But we did not get it wrong. Uh, the Bible itself presents it that way. I want to go back at something you said here. You said there's no reason not to take it historically. I, I think it goes beyond that to the fact that there's every reason to take it historically. <clears throat> and that previous generations of Christian readers would have understood that what is being presented here is an historical claim. Somewhere in the midst of the attempts to come to terms with modern biblical criticism and the denials of Scripture as a supernaturally inspired text, and given uh, all the data that uh, folks have come up with from ancient Near Eastern literature and all the rest, at one point, kind of revisionist Christians said, it isn't necessary to understand these things in, histor in historical term. There are different ways, for instance, to take uh, the opening chapters of Genesis. There are different interpretive renderings. Uh, even in recent evangelical circles, there have been some, some interesting proposals that have been made. The interesting thing is that now, now we have those who identify themselves as evangelicals taking the step considerably further than that and saying, you can't actually even have an historical Adam. It's not just that it might be possible in light of this massive new data coming to us from uh, the evolutionary worldview to think that there might be other interpretations than the historical. Now they're saying you can't have the historical. And uh, for instance, at biologos.com and in some other places, you've got videos and articles saying, well, it's clear that Paul believed in historical Adam. Uh, I mean, after all, Paul was a pre-modern man. Uh, given the data he had, what would he think but that there was an historical Adam? Uh, so they'll concede that Paul believed there is an historical Adam, but say, we simply know better now. And again, the reason why they say we know better is not because all of a sudden the Scripture has been read more clearly, uh, but because data from outside the Scripture has been brought in. I want to go to the New Testament texts that actually deal with Adam. Uh, we, we know the Genesis text... Uh, we know of the creation of Adam and then of the creation of Eve. And, and then there's not a great deal said about Adam in the Old Testament. Adam gets the story started. But then in the New Testament, Tom, there's a lot of attention to Adam. And, and where does that come from and to what text should we look? 
Well, I think the most important text is Romans chapter 5, where we have the contrast between Adam and Christ. And there, I think there, they're the two covenant heads. Sin and death come into the world through Adam, righteousness and life through Christ. Uh, it was interesting when I was working on my commentary on Romans, uh, virtually all the commentators, as you pointed out, said that Paul believed Adam was historical, even if they didn't personally believe that. They held that view. If you don't, if you don't hold to a historical Adam there, how do you hold to a historical Christ? It undercuts uh, our salvation. First Corinthians 15, Paul makes the same point. Death came into the world through one man, through Adam. First Corinthians 15:45 says he was the first man. First Timothy 2 says this again, that Adam was formed first and then Eve. So, I mean, the texts are very clear. And then, and then you pointed out the genealogies. We have that in Luke chapter 3. The, the line from Jesus goes all the way back up to Adam. And where do you cut off that genealogy? Which is also uh, mentioned in First Chronicles as well. So, I, I think the Scripture is very clear. So, Tom, let me ask you a question about scriptural authority and, and biblical inspiration. Can we trust the New Testament to interpret the old? Yes, I think we can. What I mean, are the I, theological consequences of not trusting Paul to yeah. interpret Genesis? Well, I mean, it's just, it is massive, isn't it? I mean, as you pointed out, what's happening here fundamentally is, is human wisdom, human, human reason is supplanting, is supplanting Scripture. We, we know that the New Testament writers claim to be rightly interpreting the Old Testament. I think there are good reasons to support that. We can think of Greg Beale's work in this regard, supporting that. So I think if, if we uh, deny that, we undercut, we undercut all of Scripture. Now let's ask another question. And uh, Jim Hamilton, let me ask you this. If all you had was the Bible, and so our interpretation of the Scriptures would come as closely as possible from a coming to terms with the text. And you read a text like Romans chapter 5, verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. When you read that, is there any other possible interpretation that that's making a dual historical claim? I don't see any way to get to that conclusion that it's saying something else. And I, I think that, that uh, many of those who are denying the historicity of Adam, like, like Peter ends, he, he'll frankly acknowledge, yes, that's what Paul thought. Right. And, and, and then he goes on to say, Paul may be wrong. And, and, and it's almost, now I'm going to be a little bit condescending here, but it's almost as though he pats Paul on the head and says, there, there, little ancient man. It's okay that you thought that way. And, and, and it's just historical snobbery. It is what it is, as, as though we now know better than the Apostle Paul. Well, we do know a lot of stuff the Apostle Paul didn't know. The Apostle Paul didn't know anything about germ theory, and we do. Uh, the Apostle Paul presumably held to a pre-Copernican understanding of the universe. We're, we're not there anymore. Uh, the historical Paul, who knows what he thought about the, even the geography of planet Earth beyond what was known of the Mediterranean Basin and uh, limited parts beyond. So we do know things that Paul didn't know. 
But Steve Wellham, what is it that Paul knows that we wouldn't otherwise know? Well, I mean, uh, it comes down to whether Paul uh, is speaking under inspiration uh, by the Spirit and giving us what God is saying, who does know all things, uh, and who is accurately, he is accurately communicating the truth, not in an exhaustive way, but in a, in a true way. I mean, it comes down to those foundational issues. So what we have, and you've, you've pointed out, is that we have two different authority uh, issues before us, right? Do we have the authority of something external to the text tied to science or could be other things as well, but in this case it's usually a theory of evolution, uh, over against the authority of the claim of Scripture that this is the God who has made all things, who knows all things, who rules all things, uh, by the Spirit speaking accurately through these authors. So that we have now a major authority issue here where if we then say Paul is wrong, the entire uh, claim of Scripture is now at stake. Now, those who try to maintain uh, the findings of science and then also the, what the Scripture says try to overcome that. They try to say, well, this is accommodated. And we'll have to have the entire discussion of what accommodation uh, is, but I think they've got the doctrine of accommodation wrong. But it comes down to those two major, in some sense, theologies, worldviews, whole perspectives as to the grounding for knowledge and the grounding for truth. Let's talk about the inspiration question, though. In other words, the status of Scripture itself, the, the nature of Scripture. To suggest that the Apostle Paul was mistaken here, you might try to use some theory of accommodation to say the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this, accommodating himself, that is the Holy Spirit, to the prevailing worldview so that it will be understandable, so that the Apostle Paul writing in the first century doesn't say, based upon genomic evidence that will become evident in the 21st century, uh, we will then know that Adam was not historical, but for now this is going to have to do. Uh, I mean, clearly, we, we believe that all revelation is accommodation, but it's not an accommodation to falsehood. And it, it, it's, it's, it's an accommodation to our conceptual limitedness, which is going to be true regardless of what age of human knowledge in which we live, but it's not an accommodation to error. And, and what you basically have here, if, if Paul's wrong on this, then test, test me on this. Can we have any claim of the Scripture other than that it is the best human effort to explain, for instance, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the data that the apostles and the other writers of the New Testament had. I mean, that's a very different understanding of the status of Scripture. But have I missed something? Is, the, is there some other way of understanding than the nature and, and authority of the New Testament? No, I think you're right. And, and I, I keep referring to ends. I've, I've looked at a lot of things he said. But he'll, he'll say, historically, this is not true, but theologically, it remains the case. And, and, and I think that's... Uh, analogous to saying, well, sure, historically there's no such thing as Zeus, but theologically it still has relevance, all of this Greco-Roman mythology, and it, it, it undermines the, the authority and the, and the reliability of it. Can, can I add something to that? Uh, when, when you read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, uh, one of the points they make over and over again is that Yahweh tells the truth, whereas the, the uh, false prophets in Jeremiah's day um, and, uh, and, uh, and the idols will lie to you. 
but Yahweh can always be trusted to tell the truth. And so the entire premise of the Old Testament uh, from Genesis through Malachi is that what we're being given here is true. It's not just theologically true. It's not just somehow mythologically true. Uh, it is historically true. It, it can be trusted implicitly. And so we come to the New Testament, and there's this implicit faith. Uh, Jesus uh, mentions Jonah, for instance. Only on one occasion does he mention Jonah, but he uh, he very clearly is is assuming and believing that Jonah was a historical character. We were discussing this in colloquium the other day, and uh, uh, Donald Blesh in his book on Scripture uh, says that it is uh, that the credibility of the Bible does not depend upon the edibility of Jonah. Uh, but I would, I would demur. The credibility of the Bible does depend upon the edibility of Jonah because Jesus mentioned Jonah. And of course, Adam has mentioned many more times, and uh, Dr. Schreiner mentioned the three Pauline texts. Jesus mentions not Adam by name, but the text of Genesis chapter 2, especially verse 24 in Mark chapter 10 and Mark chapter 19. If we cannot take the reference in the words of our Savior, then how can we really consider ourselves to be consistent Christians? So all of a sudden now, this question comes with greater urgency. And you have such things as uh, uh, Bruce Waltke saying that if we do not come to terms and accept the basic evolutionary worldview, we are in danger of, well, he makes the statements more inevitably uh, in the situation of turning evangelicalism into some kind of an intellectual cult. Uh, is that true? I mean, that's a pretty serious charge. At least we ought to look at it face on and say, is, is, is that the consequence of holding to the historicity of the biblical narrative? Well, if we go to the point where um, we are saying Paul got it wrong, now, I'm not sure Waltke you know, has his own twist to these things, but you know, like a guy like Pete Enns or Kenton Sparks who will actually say right. Paul is wrong. I mean, it's accommodated, but we now know that he is not right on this. Uh, the implication of this, right, is that um, uh, the Bible in itself cannot serve as a sufficient standard for us to be able to say anything about the gospel, anything that's true. We cannot appeal to the Bible and say, thus says the Word of God, thus says what Scripture says. We always need something external to the Bible to be able to say, well, that they got it right there. They didn't get it right there. Uh, that point about forgiveness of sins maybe is correct, and that's not, right? So you're always now having to stand over uh, the Scripture so that ultimately the entire authority of the Scripture and the Gospel is at stake here. Well, let's, let's look at this head on. Again, what would the theological consequence be of accepting the denial of an historical Adam? In other words, let's just look at the intellectual consequences, the theological consequences head on. Let's not blink here. If, if the Genesis narrative is not historical, then the account of human origins that we have is an account of human origins that comes to us basically on the authority of whatever is the prevailing model of evolutionary theory in modern paleontology and biology, evolutionary studies. And that prevailing model right now would, would say that based upon the genomic evidence of genetic diversity, it, it's simply impossible there's a primal pair. There, there could have been, we're now told in one of the lectures by, by one of the primary figures in this, that uh, there could have been no fewer than tens of thousands of original hominids uh, from whom uh, all, we are all uh, uh, descended. And, and others will say, no, it had to be a much larger pool even than that. 
And of course, if you do not have a headship of humanity in Adam, if, if, if we do not have a, a paternity in Adam, and the Scripture also makes very clear historical claims about the maternity of Eve as the mother of all the living. Uh, if we are not from that primal pair, then what do we know about the status of human beings? I mean, if, if we're now not going to be able to go to Genesis for that, then, then what... What is the theological uh, limitation of what we can say about what is man that thou art mindful of him? Yeah, if I could make uh, a comment on uh, Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mm -hmm. mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So if there's many different human beings, many different origins for human beings, then at least it's possible that some aren't in the image of God. It's also possible principally to defend racism. That's some right. races are superior to others. Some human uh, groups have uh, uh, greater abilities. They're more dignified. They have a greater essence than others. So uh, I mean, there's just massive problems there. I'm not saying that these people are arguing for such, but in principle, it allows for it. And, and of course, as we know, some, some uh, social scientists and thinkers are even espousing these sort of things anyway. Yeah. So it's, it's quite, uh, the, the implications are massive. You know, so let's trace these out mm -hmm. just a little bit. Let's follow what's going on here. So the scriptural worldview presents us a very clear statement about the unconditional unity of the human race in Adam. The one thing we know is that every single human being is descended from the same father and the same mother. We are thus of the same tribe. Uh, we, we have the same status. And, and that is the most powerful and profound refutation of any claim of racial superiority. And without that, you're right. You not only have the possibility of different kinds of human statuses, you have the necessity of it. Uh, because you have different peoples who are in different places, descended by, by different lines. In the moment you have, as, as one theologian rightly put it, the moment you have diversity in terms of that human story, then you've got a diversity that implies some superiority and some inferiority. And, and modern evolutionists don't want to come to terms with that, but they have spawned a problem they cannot resolve and do not want to honestly face. It's another issue here. If we... If, if we deny the unity of the human race in Adam, then, and you imply this, Tom, you have to come up with, if you're going to reconcile this with Scripture in any way, and, and with somehow the imago dei, then you're going to have to come up with some kind of rendering. And, and so you have, uh, and we can name names, ranging from names as venerable as John Stott to others who have who have suggested such things as the fact that there wasn't an original pair, there was something like an original tribe. And, and, uh, and, and they became not only uh, the, the, the human who thinks, but uh, uh, homo sapiens, but homo divinitas, he says, the, you know, the ensouled creature. The, the moment somehow they were endowed with by the divine gift, this, this status that they previously did not have, but the obvious implication of that is, is that there were other hominids who then were not given that gift because they were not of that tribe. And, and, and so we have insurmountable problems, not only in terms of the, the, of the unity of the human race in Adam, 
we have, we have enormous problems in explaining how it is that we all are actually made in the image of God. So what are the theological consequences of that, Chad? I mean, wh- wh- where do we go from there? Well, they're huge um, because if, and, and of course, uh, he referred to uh, the racial issue uh, you would know and many would know here that in the uh, post-Civil War years, a number of philosophers in the South actually proposed polygenism as a way to understand the black-white issue. And of course, it wasn't long after that that um, uh, Wagner with his operas and and the whole German spirit of of the Aryan superiority was rearing its head that eventually led to uh, 1933 and the rise of Adolf Hitler. so just in terms of political implications, they're huge, but huge. But the theological implications about the image of God, uh, it's hard to even imagine a more significant issue related to anthropology and soteriology, the doctrine of man and doctrine of salvation, than to assert that maybe some of the people that we bump into at the mall really are not made in the image of God. It would be so easy even, even to come up with a, just a personal issue of racism uh, or uh, ethnocentrism or whatever it might be, and to convince ourselves that not everybody out there deserves to be saved. So just to affirm this so that we're facing honestly what is given to us in the Scripture, we find the unity of the human race in the fact that God created Adam in his own image and then Eve, and then he gave them the command to to replenish the earth, to populate the earth. Every single human being is thus a descendant of Adam and Eve, and we are of the same kind. Uh, Even with different ethnicity and culture and language and and all that dealt with in the scriptural narrative as well, Uh, even even with, with all kinds of differences, there's a fundamental unity. And that gets to the next issue. It's not as if Genesis just tells us of the creation of Adam and Eve, and then we move right on, there's a narrative, a narrative that's essential not only to understanding Adam and Eve, but to understanding ourselves uh, and understanding the human story. And, and that's where, for instance, when I was in the debate on NPR uh, just a few weeks ago, um, the issue really came down to the fact that there are now folks who are saying quite openly Evolution also tells us something else. There's a, there's a narrative that comes by means of evolution, and that narrative of evolution tells us that long before the emergence of human beings, there had to be catastrophe. Long before there could be the, the effects of something called the fall and God's judgment on the fall, there were all these catastrophic things. There was death and predation and, and, and all these kinds of things. There never was an original innocence, and, and, and there never was a fall, they're now saying. So, the fall really does require an historical Adam, right? And the headship of all humanity in Adam. I mean, that's exactly what Paul's saying, both in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. We, we all fell in Adam. Well, did we? Without, without the fall, I don't know, and without that innocence, I don't know how you explain this sort of longing for a pristine condition, this longing for, for even peace in our time. You know, this is, this is just articulating something that the prophets promise that will be a, a reversal of the curse when they'll beat the swords into plowshares and, and a renewal of that peace between peoples that was experienced before the fall. And it, if that was never a reality, why, why would people long for that the way they clearly do? Let's just take the biblical narrative. Let's just consider human history without it. We're now told that 
misbehavior, uh, murder, rape, disobedience to parents, you name it, that that's all just kind of normal behavior determined by biology. Uh, What does that say about human responsibility? What does that say about the human need for redemption? And then fundamentally, we're here more importantly than anything else to talk about what in the world does that imply about Christ and and why Christ came and what Christ did for us? You see, I I think you can actually make the case, and and this is becoming more and more clear, that when the biblical meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is now denied at the beginning. It has to be denied in the middle. It has to be denied or modified tremendously at the end. In other words, it's going to be hard to imagine how you're going to look at this and hold to something like substitutionary atonement uh, or uh, even a penal. How can you have a penal understanding of the cross if if misbehavior uh, that we would call sin is nothing more than a natural pattern of behavior? Uh, Christ didn't come to improve our evolutionary line. He came to redeem sinners. And and that's precisely what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. That's precisely what he's promising us in 1 Corinthians 15. So now you have those who are coming, and and I think it's important we recognize this. You have a Brian McLaren who comes along. Uh, and uh, in a new kind of Christianity, explicitly argues that what we need is a new meta narrative. We we need to recognize that old meta narrative with nothing more than the imposition of Greco-Roman categories upon the text. That the actual reading of the text would lead us to something that that would not require any kind of substitutionary atonement. That would not require any kind of of uh, of redemption by some kind of forensic act of God in order to to save sinners through the through the, the atonement accomplished by his son. You, you don't have to talk about human sinfulness as that big a problem because, again, that's just kind of natural behavior. And what the gospel really tells us is that we can be better than we are, we can do better than we're doing, and, and promises an eschatology of kind of a new humanity out there with Christ as our mentor. Um, I'm going to argue right now and ask you guys to, to respond to this. If if we can't hold to the biblical meta-narrative because we're accountable to Scripture, and this is what Scripture clearly reveals, and it's, it, it's grounded in history, then I, I, I think a new meta-narrative is what we got to come up with. Am I wrong with that? Well, let, let me just say that this whole thing was attempted 200 years ago when, when the clash between science and uh, traditional theology first really took place in earnest in Germany in the late 18th century, early 19th century, uh, that's exactly what they did. And so Schleiermacher publishes in 1821 his Letter, The Christian Faith, which is a complete reworking of systematic theology. And he, he found that, it, that if you're going to deny such things as the historicity of Adam, that you do have to deny substitutionary atonement. And you do have to deny the literal second coming of Christ. And so really, when somebody like Inns does what he does, we ought not to be surprised where it ends up. Yeah. And that it's going to end up in just a new liberalism. This is a new liberalism. We need to face that and call it what it is. Call it what Machen called it, a new form of Christianity. Well, you know, well, and actually to, to correct that just slightly, what Machen said is it new isn't religion. actually a new form of Christianity. Yeah, it's a different religion, religion altogether. Yeah. And, uh, but I knew exactly what you meant. And, you know, if, you, if you're looking at this, you have to realize that that goes back to what I said about the delayed fuse. It's all of a sudden like liberal Protestants smelled this air and saw this clearly 
uh, you know, back in the, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But now we have people in supposedly evangelical institutions. We have people who want to claim evangelical identity who, who all of a sudden are saying, well, you know, I'm, we're not just coming with Darwin and, uh, and, and uh, evolutionary knowledge as it existed back in the, in, in the early 20th century. We're coming with new stuff. We have, we have, we have decoded the human genome. Uh, we now know, we now know all this stuff. So I, I want to go to the we now know for a moment because, again, I think intellectual honesty requires us to say we do now know a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> we know, we know things that that simply amaze us and, and, and change our fundamental understandings of, of reality. And Einsteinian physics uh, still being revised, but nonetheless gives us very understanding, very different understanding of matter as it is. We have, we, again, germ theory has completely transformed uh, the way that, that we think about disease and, and its transmission and all the rest. And, you know, there are some people who simply would suggest that those changed intellectual conditions as the philosophers would say, are going to necessitate a fundamental re-understanding of Scripture. Now, what we, I think we've affirmed here is that if that's true, then that, that creates a new Christianity. That's a, that's a very different Christianity. But I, I think we would not have done our job until we come to some terms, we come to some intellectual terms with this claim of new knowledge. What do we, what do, we do with this? Steve? Well, I mean, we're dealing with, in some sense, the old, I mean, everyone's wrestled with this, the relationship between what we call general revelation mm -hmm. and what we have with special revelation, scripture, uh, and then that of nature. I mean, the church has not uh, been unfamiliar with this. Mm -hmm. So that we do learn things from science, we do learn things from uh, all of the disciplines, but we then have to make sure uh, that uh, we are properly interpreting uh, those so-called facts that are coming. I mean, all of the facts require some kind of interpretation, some kind of understanding. And of course, the dispute now comes in the interpretation of, of the data. And then we have to, as Christians, then say, how does this relate to then special revelation? And behind that are larger um, theory of knowledge issues as, well, what will even ground my science and my, um, uh, my, my study of that discipline? Uh, where do I get the assumptions to be able to carry out those, uh, you know, uh, areas of study and so on? So, I mean, there's, there's a larger discussion that has to take place. But for us, we have to say, look, Scripture has, first and foremost, a priority. It is a word revelation that then, yes, has to be integrated. God has revealed himself in the entire created order. But we must make sure that we're understanding that order correctly. We are interpreting it properly, and it then must be integrated with uh, what Scripture says. Jim, you want to add something? I would add that with that with that new knowledge, I think we also need to recognize that if if we're going to go away from the biblical narratives you were saying earlier, people really need to to acknowledge and embrace a, a total recalibration of our our moral and ethical sensibilities so that not only is the racism on the table and and possibly the best way forward for the future you can also make a case for eugenics you can make a case for for the forced sterilization of unwanted peoples you you can you can selectively terminate pregnancies if 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 something is is determined to be deficient or lacking in the in the infant i mean there're just all kinds of moral and 
what kind of sexuality is pursued? Why limit it to one woman? Why, why, if, if you have the power to do so, why not do what Ahasuerus does in the book of Esther and, and gather all the beautiful young virgins of the realm and just cycle them through as he does in, in that book? I mean, what, what moral basis is there for saying that that's wrong or that that should be offensive? Again, the accountability to this new knowledge, and, and let's be honest, this new knowledge will be supplanted by another new knowledge in fairly short order, but uh, it would be intellectually dishonest to say that there's not a mainstream evolutionary body of knowledge that, uh, that scientists are continually working on and, and feel accountable to. Um, I want to suggest something, and, and that is that actually the biblical meta-narrative gives us everything we need in order to understand this. When I have people ask me, well, then how do you deal with this knowledge? I simply say, well, look, the only reason that I believe in an historical Adam, the only reason I believe in the federal headship of of Adam over the whole human race, the only reason I believe in the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only reason I believe in the gospel is because of the Scriptures. I mean, there, there, there is no gospel that is going to be discovered by naturalistic means. This is a supernatural act of a supernatural God supernaturally revealed to us uh, in, in the, the pages of an inerrant and infallible Scripture. So what do I do with the rest? Well, I would simply say that scientists, by their very nature and by the nature of their work, are doing the best they can with the data that's accessible to them. They're not looking to the Scripture for that data. They're looking at the natural data coming from the world. But what does Scripture tell us? Scripture tells us that that world is not going to tell us the truth. I mean, Genesis 3 tells us that that world is showing all the effects of the fall. That world is showing all the effects of the flood. That, that world is showing all the effects of the ravages of, of, of human sin and God's judgment upon that sin. Romans 1 tells us that, that God has embedded even His invisible attributes in the things that are clearly seen, and yet human sinfulness explains why we do not see that. So when someone comes and says, look, how are you going to deal with the fact that these people are telling the truth? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think they're telling us the truth as best they know it. I, 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 don't, think scientists, I don't think the evolutionary scientists are trying to lie to us. I, I don't think those who, who are even arguing about all this genomic diversity are trying to lie to us. I, I think they're doing the very best they can with the intellectual tools they have to deal honestly with the data that is before them. The, the, the fact is, however, that we are accountable to different data. And, and the data to which we are primarily accountable, which is Scripture, tells us that in a fallen world, we can't count on rocks to tell us the truth. That doesn't mean what they're telling us is unimportant. Uh, we, we, can't, we, we, we can't count on genomic research to tell us who we are as human beings. We, we can say, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of knowledge that's likely to come from that, knowledge that may lead to everything from medical treatments to... to you know, uh, different kinds of of biological insights. I think it's important that we say it's not as if we have scientists out there who are trying to lie to us. They're doing the very best they can with the data. What I'm talking about here is the phenomenological understanding of modern knowledge and modern science. They're, They're doing exactly what we would expect them to do, and they're coming to terms as best they can with the natural data that is before them. The problem is we're not in that naturalistic box. The very fact that we are Christians is premised upon the fact that we believe that 
It is a non-naturalistic revelation and a supernatural act of God that explains how it is that sinners are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that requires an understanding of humanity, of human origins, of the human problem, and, and, and of the means by which human beings can be justified before a righteous and holy God. And then also the end of the story. I mean, because it's not just creation, fall, redemption. It's also the, the end of the story. And that's where evolution, as an intellectual project, has a very different end, does it not? Jad? Yeah, um, one thing I've been sitting here thinking <laughs> that we have not addressed yet is the fact that there are a number of people in the scientific community who have rejected Darwinism. And I'm not just talking about people in Answers in Genesis or people that could be written off as uh, some kind of fundamentalist. Think of Michael Behe with Darwin's Black Box. Uh, has, has given us a, a sufficient number of reasons to call Darwinism in, into question. But even non-Christian, uh, non-theistic uh, people who work in this field, Paul Davies, Australian physicist, has, has come out publicly and said, I, I just think that there are too many internal problems with Darwinism uh, as it has been presented. I, I don't have anything to replace it with, but I, I'm not going to accept that anymore. And, and the number of people in that camp is, is fairly large. Uh, but you're exactly right. Uh, we have to begin with a biblical foundationalism. And the, uh, the tendency among many of these so-called evangelicals today is that they've developed a kind of a web of knowledge, epistemological web, where they have the social sciences and the hard sciences and history and a variety of other things, then the Bible, and it's just one of the items in the web, but it doesn't take any supremacy. We have to have, be biblical foundationalists who believe in the importance of all of these other areas of research, but who test everything by the Word of God. And as you just indicated, if we don't do that, we're headed for serious trouble, not only intellectually, but spiritually and theologically. And you're right, we don't have anything to look forward to in the future if Darwinism is right. Read H.G. Wells' book uh, on the time machine, and when that, that time traveler goes a million years into the future, he sees the world as nothing but a dead hulk. That's where evolution's taken us. Well, this is a conversation that is more easily begun than ended, uh, simply because there's so many issues that will spin off of this and necessarily have to be traced. But I want to express my appreciation to you for joining me for this conversation today. I think it was a conversation we needed to have. Uh, I think we were able to put some things on the table that uh, we're all going to have to be thinking about and working on for some time. But I want to conclude by saying that the most important issue in all this is not refuting what we believe to be a, a an inadequate understanding of Scripture or a misconstrual of uh, a biblical truth, I think we need to conclude by saying it really comes down to whether or not we have the confidence to declare the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without understanding the first Adam, we really can't understand, as Paul makes very clear, the second Adam. And it requires the first Adam to understand the story in its full context of how it is that God glorifies Himself through the salvation of sinners through the second Adam, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. My thanks to Tom Schreiner and Chad Brand and Jim Hamilton and Steve Wellen for joining me today. Would you express your appreciation to the panel this morning? All right, we're going to take a break here. We're going to, uh, when we come back, we'll uh, have uh, Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis on a short thing, and then Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. You, you don't want to miss this. This is an important episode of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me, you know all my contact email, uh, stuff, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, at Pirate Christian on Twitter, or you can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash 
Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Bum, 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 bum. 
right, we're back. Warning, you get rid of the historical Adam, and you and I don't have a reason to be saved, at least not biblically. There's no, men, there's no well, real reason Jesus should be hanging dead on a cross. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, and you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is automatically signing up to contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us because uh, the more people that join our crew, uh, what that does is it levels out our giving month after month, at least makes it predictable, and by being predictable, it makes it better, easier for us to budget uh, in order to pay our bills. So uh, that's one way to do it. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now we're going to steer a little bit in a different direction. I'm going to have Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis uh, talk to us about how death is an enemy. Death is not our friend. Death is an enemy. And uh, and uh, and then from there, we're going to take a hard turn into science itself uh, by do- the late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith talking about the seven postulates of evolutionary theory and demonstrating how they're not even scientific. So, uh, but first, here's Ken Ham. You know, I've met many Christians who, as, as a witness to their non-Christians, they say, can't you see this beautiful world that God made? But you know, when we look at it, it's not so beautiful, is it? Yeah, there's beauty out there, but there's a lot of ugliness too. And a lot of times I think Christians give the wrong idea to, to non-believers when they're, they're saying, look at this, look at this beautiful world. I had a pastor friend in Australia and right on the east coast there, he said he used to take his uh, neighbors up on one of the mountains and he overlooked the, the beautiful coast of Australia and he would tell him, can't you see there's a God? Look at, look at all this beauty here. But see, at the same time we see beauty, we also see a world where we see sorrow. We see joy, we see sorrow, we see life, we see death. We see love, we see hate, all at the same time. So how do we put all that together? How do we understand that? Well, let's first of all understand the Bible's perspective. Let's start with God's Word. And as we start with God's Word, I want to remind us of something. In Matthew 19, when Jesus was asked about marriage, he said, Have you not read, he which made the beginning made the male and female, and he built the doctrine of marriage upon the history in Genesis? And I just quote that to you for this reason. If we take Genesis exactly the same way that Jesus took Genesis as literal history, and Jesus took Genesis here as literal history, in fact, in Matthew 19, he was quoting from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, was talking about the one flesh. If we take Genesis the same way Jesus took Genesis, then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, we read that, Originally, Adam and Eve were vegetarian. They would eat fruit. The animals were vegetarian, eating plants. It wasn't until after the flood that God said that we could eat meat. And why did our diet change after the flood? Why did God say, just as I gave you the plants, now I give you the animals as well. Now I give you everything. So what changed? Well, Adam, you can eat of all the trees. There's one tree you're not to eat of because if you do, you will surely what? 
die. You know, there's a theme that I see right through Scripture. starts in Genesis, and we see it going all the way through Scripture right to Revelation. It's the theme of this, life or death. Right there in Genesis, God made two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And actually, I like to call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the tree of death. Because, Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely what? Die. Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life. But what happened? Adam sinned. Adam disobeyed God. And so death came into the world. They were thrown out of the garden. They weren't allowed to partake of the tree of life. You see, right there in Genesis, right there back in the garden in Genesis, we read that they had a a choice, if you like, between life and death. Adam, obey me, choose life. If you disobey me, death. And what happened? He chose death. And here's what we need to understand right from the start. The meaning of anything is tied up with its origin. You see, the meaning of marriage is tied up with its origin in Genesis. The meaning of sin is tied up with its origin in Genesis. The meaning of the seven-day week is tied up with its origin in Genesis. The meaning of why we wear clothes is tied up with its origin in Genesis. And the meaning of death is tied up with its origin in which book? Genesis, exactly. The reason there's death in the world is because we sinned against a holy God. See, think about it like this. When, when God made everything, you realize that God sustains everything by the power of his word. Jesus Christ holds all things together. By him, all things consist. He holds everything together by the power of his word. And when he created and said everything was very good, he held everything together perfectly. It was very good. There was no death, no suffering, no tragedy. It was, it was a perfect world. We, we have no sense really of what that's like because we live in a fallen world. We live in a changed world. So we don't really understand what that was like. And when Adam sinned, what did God do? God obviously withdrew some of that sustaining power because the Bible now says it's a groaning world. It's running down because of sin. You see, Adam, if you sin, you will surely die. So God withdrew some of that sustaining power so everything would run down, so we would run down, so we would die. We forfeited our right to live because we and Adam sinned. Adam was the head of the human race. What he did, we did. We sinned in him. We came from him. He represented us. And that's the point. That's that's, That's it. He represented us. And we can't make sense of this world without understanding sin and death and the origins of death and where it came from and how this is not what God intended from the beginning. It was not built this way. So anyway, yeah, you, you kind of start to see the, the linchpins and see how this all holds together. Now, Last but not least, and this is not an easy lecture to get through. Um, you might need to listen to it a couple of times. But uh, here, this is a lecture uh, delivered by Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith, doc, the late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. And I had the opportunity to uh, basically be taught by him. Um, he was, uh, he, he came to the university that I was attending at, at Christ college. It was Concordia when he, when he came there and uh, I was able to sit through basically several lectures uh, presented by him at Concordia university and, uh, and spent some time it, really sitting down and talking with him, read his books as a result of, uh, of his, uh, of his lectures and this is the guy who really helped give me a good scientific understanding of why evolutionary fo- uh, theory falls flat. 
And so the name of this lecture is Seven Main Postulates of Evolution. And in this lecture, he decimates the seven fun foundational concepts behind evolutionary theory, specifically biogenesis. Okay. Now, let me kind of set it up this way. In the in the uh, panel discussion we heard with Dr. Muller and his colleagues there at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary this morning, they mentioned the fact that, uh, that uh, geneticists are basically trying to use genetic evidence to say that there wasn't one primal pair of human beings, okay? But what they're not telling you is, is that evolutionary theorists, people who believe in evolution, um, they believe in a primal amoeba, if you would, okay? That's probably the best way to describe it, that at one point by some random accident, um, you can think of lightning hitting primordial ooze, all of a sudden there was boom, life, okay? And that everything evolved from that that primordial amoeba, okay? Um, that's what they don't tell you, okay? And so you just ask yourself this question. Is, is it scientifically valid or even legitimate to believe that all of the complex life that we see, this includes plant life, plant life, micro uh, microorganism life, uh, all the way up to something as complex as a human being, that all of that has as its origin genetically a basically a primal first amoeba yeah that's see that's what they're not telling you so <laughs> yeah so you know, uh, really so there's there isn't a primal pair adam and eve but there's a primor uh, a primal amoeba because they believe in something called biogenesis and the, and a e wilder smith knows his stuff he knows his microbiology very well too and uh, so without any further ado, here is Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith, The Seven Main Postulates of Evolution. You might want to take notes or to make this a lecture that you listen to a couple of times just to make sure that you, you get it. So here we go. Carry on. Now, I'm going to talk to you about evolution this morning because I don't think there's any subject which is so falsely presented in the intellectual world today as that subject. And people don't get ratty over subjects as much as they get over evolution. They really do lose their tempers, and they get hot under the collar, and, uh, you know, they'll call you all sorts of nasty names, uh, which I just ignore. I don't call them back nasty names, but uh, the, the, what I'm going to talk about evolution today is this. It's really a basic problem of thinking, and thinking straight very difficult, you know, to think straight. If you're always taught that 2 plus 2 equals 5, say your mathematics teacher taught you that, in the end you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5. You would, and then you'd never be able to do any mathematics again, would you? That would finish you off. I mean, you wouldn't be able to do any calculus or any bookkeeping or anything like that. So you must get the basics right. Now, the biologists have seen for years the fact that there is a gradation of complexity in the biological world. You see the uh, amoeba, you've all seen amoeba, haven't you, under the microscope? 
You have? Don't say you haven't. You have. Okay. Well, you see, so it goes up, you get paramecium and all the other little things, and you get below them the bacteria and the viruses, and then you go up to the tadpoles and the frogs and the amphibia, and then you go to the reptiles, and then you go to the octopuses. You've all seen octopuses, haven't you? You have, haven't you? Uh-huh. What sort of an eye do they have? An eye? Have you ever looked into their eyes? Oh, you want to have a look at them. We've seen lots of them in the Canary Islands, in the Atlantic, you know, Bronx to Spain. They pull them out, big fellows, out of the water and uh, squint their eyes closed because the light's too bright for them, you see. And then they try to hop off on their uh, eight tentacles back to the sea again. And they always get caught because the fishermen like to eat them there. Uh, anyway, you find all these things are have a gradation of complexity. The amoeba is much more simple than, say, the frog. And the frog is much more simple than the uh, crocodile. And the crocodile is more simple than, say, the wolf. And the wolf is not so complex as the monkey. And the monkey is, well, sometimes quite complex, isn't he, the monkey? But they find this gradation in the biological spectrum and therefore, if you were to say today that therefore, on the basis of the spectrum you see today, uh, the amoeba developed into Homo sapiens sapiens, you'd say that is, let me see if they know, did you do any Latin? Do you know what a known sequitur means? N-O-N, sequitur, where's the board? Um, let me see if you do know what that is, and I'll... I'll give you a better grade then, you see. Now, do you know what that means? It's very important when you're arguing with people that you know the terms. A known sequitur means a step which is not logical, something which doesn't follow. Uh, you'll find this in all types of arguments in science and uh, in languages, the use of that term. Now, it would be, wouldn't it, a known sequitur to say that because there are amoeba, and because there are frogs, and because there are monkeys, and because there are man, that therefore the amoeba gave rise to the man. That is the evolution of the amoeba to man. But you see, because you've seen a gradation like that in the, in the fossil world, in the formations, they say that gradation must really mean that one is developed from the other. Well, it doesn't follow, does it? And that's just what a known sequitur means, it doesn't follow. Now, um, there is a gradation in the fossils. Don't let's argue about that. There is. But to say that because there's a gradation, therefore one developed from another, is an entirely different kettle of fish. Okay? Now, that's what the evolutionary theory was developed for, to explain this uh, gradation of complexity from one to another in scientific terms. And Darwin came up with the idea that if a cell replicates, now you all know what replication means, don't you? You do. Dead silence. Well, I'm going to put it up in case you get stuck, because I wouldn't like that. If it multiplies, okay, replication is the right term, multiplies is a general term, then Darwin said they'll be different, the offspring, they'll compete with one another, 
And only the efficient and the fit will live, the others will die. So the creative method, they said, depends upon the killing of the unfit and the preservation of the fit. So God's creative method, according to Darwin, was evolution, Darwinian evolution. Now let's have a look at the postulates on which the evolutionary theory is based. We've got them here, and I've taken them from G.A. Professor G.A. Kirkett's book, which is published in England, uh, and which is a very good book. He's an evolutionist. He believes in evolution. Uh, he was trained in Cambridge, so he ought to be okay, oughtn't he? Ought to be okay. But uh, he is very good. He's professor now at Southampton in the south southern part of England, and he wrote a book called The Implications of Evolution. Now, in that book, he says, let's just have a look carefully on what all evolutionary theory is based. He says the first postulate they make is that non-living matter, what's non-living matter? What is non-living matter? What does that mean? Yes. What does non-living matter mean? How would you say it? Oh, you all sleep. Well, it means life that's inorganic, that isn't alive. Say crystals, granite, and rock, and all the rest of it, okay? Non-living matter spontaneously produced living matter at biogenesis. Now, you know what biogenesis means, don't you? The genesis of life, that is the starting of life. That is, that life started from non-living matter spontaneously. You didn't have to do anything about it. Uh, a creative act of God was not necessary. As long as you've got matter, Darwin believed that God made matter. But he didn't think that God acted on matter to make life out of it. That is, now, you're listening very carefully, Darwin, in his early days, was a Christian. And he was a theist. That is, he believed in God, and that God made matter. He was a creationist, if you like. Now, in his later days, he became, I'm going to put this up so you can see, he was a theist. That is, that God made matter, and then he acted on matter and produced life. And that is theism, that God does act today, that he does things for us. Now, Darwin became, in the course of his life, a deist. That is, he thought that God made the world and then just retired and didn't do anything more, and God was dead. Plenty of God is dead people. They don't think God acts, you know, today. So he became a deist. He never became an atheist, Darwin. He was always a deist until he died. Atheist, I'll put that up so you've got the three there. Now, that's the first postulate, that non-living matter, without any creative act of God, produced living matter uh, to produce the first living cell. That's postulate number one. What scientific proof have we got of that? None. There isn't any. So we'll put down to one postulate. We'll put down a little cloth. There's not a tick or anything like that to show it's true. Now, postulate two says this, that spontaneous biogenesis, according to one, that's this one here, occurred only once, so that all present-day life descended from one single cell. Now, why did they say that? That this spontaneous development of life occurred only once, yes? Oh, no. 
not really. That's not the reason. You see, if they hadn't been able to get it in lab uh, laboratories, that would mean that this is wrong, wouldn't it? Because you can't repeat it. Now, there's never been any repetition of that. If you put a lot of matter, say you put dead sardines in a, a can, we do that on quite a large scale, don't we? Now, I don't, personally, but I like sardines. But um, you've never seen a sardine can, which is dead, and there's no life in it. You've never seen it produce life, have you? I haven't either. So to say this, you've got in a sardine can, you've got all the forms of life, all the elements you need to life, because they were hopping little fish at one time, weren't they? They ought to be all right to come to life. But we've done that experiment millions of times every time we've made a sardine can, and there's never any life come out of it, right or wrong. So we can say to one, there's no scientific proof of it at all. Now, can we say spontaneous generation, spontaneous biogenesis, according to one, occurred only once so that life, present-day life, descended from one single cell? Is that true or wrong? Is it true, right, or wrong? Come on, don't be afraid. I'm, uh, they, they tell me I'm a Britisher, you see, and British, uh, the British have, don't have a needle to their national sign, do they? You know what they do have. Come on, who teaches you your history? Who teaches you geography? I'll go and complain. A lion, the British lion. Anybody think I was that, wouldn't you? Where you want something. Um, well, you get to two. Uh, there's no evidence that that occurred only once. But what, why do they say it then if there's no evidence for it? Well, if this doesn't occur, then this falls apart, doesn't it? There's no point in going on. If you don't get life, there's no evolution, so drop the whole matter. That's quite clear. But you see here, your spontaneous biogenesis occurring only once. What's the reason they say that? You must think what other people think, you know, and you'll never get at people's minds unless you think as they do, or try to understand why they think as they do. The reason is that the genetic code in all life is the same. The genetic code in you, I mean, how it works, the, uh, the, the codons and all the rest of it, and the ribosomes, is the same in you as it is in a frog or a cauliflower, isn't it? You know that, don't you? So they say, well, it's unlikely that a genetic code like that, complicated as it is, would have formed twice exactly the same, by chance. If it had formed a second time, it would probably be different to what it did the first time. So they say, as in all nature, it is the same. Therefore, all nature is derived from one cell. That is, this postulate too. Now, is that reasonable? I don't think it's reasonable. All because you see, uh, I don't think a genetic code, a language, would ever be formed by chance anyway. So this business about spontaneously here is anyway makes the whole business very doubtful, doesn't it? Okay. Now there's one thing here which you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, like to know: what is the basis of a scientific fact? When do you accept a fact as scientific? when it can be repeated, that's right. Well now, has it ever been repeated that from one cell 
other cells arose, different cells arose, higher cells, you can't repeat it, that's the trouble. But you see, they say that it only occurred once. If they say it only occurred once and you can't do it again, they're saying it's unscientific. So written right bang in the middle, that written right bang in the middle, this is all scientific nonsense which we're teaching you. Because you can't repeat it. It occurred only once. So if you keep your eyes open, you see, the old English proverb is this, that if you give enough, enough rope to a calf, it'll always hang itself. Yeah. So you give enough rope to the evolutionists and they'll hang themselves. Because they've done it here, you see. Uh, spontaneous biogenesis, according to one, occurred only once. Well, if it occurred only once and you can never repeat it, why bother about it? Because it isn't scientific. It's only scientific if you can repeat it. You look very unhappy about this. Is this true or is it not? I used to think, boy, look, this is an idea. Let's, let's write this large on it in our head so that we know how to talk to people. And you'll be able to talk to your teacher, you see, which is always an advantage. Now, the third thing is, the different viruses, bacteria, plants and animals, all descended from one another. They're all interrelated. What about that one? Would you say that a fly is related to you? Would you say that a fly is your great uncle, to put it like, uh, uh, to put it very, very crudely? No, I mean, they're so different, aren't they? I mean, flies know enough about us to annoy us, don't they? But uh, uh, I don't think that you could say they've got any way related to us, except their genetic code. Their genetic code is very similar to ours. That is, the mechanism by which the information is retained, stored and retrieved, is very similar. But I wouldn't say a fly's eye look like, looks like your eye, yeah. does it? And a fly's brain, well, you're not pinheads, are you? So I, I think you're all right there. So th that one, you see, we'll put that one down as unscientific. Number two and number three, to say they are descended from one another is just a statement. There's no proof about it. This is the basis of evolution. These are the implications of evolution, the seven main postulates of the theory of evolution. So we've got three now, and none of them is scientific. You can't repeat them. And if you can't repeat them, they're unscientific. Okay? Let's go on to four, then. If you have any questions, you know, you can ask them. Uh, number four, the metazoa. Now, what are the metazoans? Biology class, the elite of, uh, of uh, Costa-Mesa What are the metazoans? I shall go and complain to your teacher. Oh, he's standing at the back, so we'll get him in the corner at the end. What are the metazoans? They're many-celled organisms. The uh, metazoans are spontaneously developed from the protozoans. What are protozoans? single-celled organisms, that's right. So they're saying that the single-celled organisms spontaneously developed into multi-celled organisms. Now, we were all, at one time, uh, single-celled organisms, weren't we? The fertilized ovum was a single cell. Uh, anybody who doesn't know might mistake it for an amoeba, but if you do know, you don't. Yeah. But uh, the amoeba developed up to us, We've got millions, millions of cells in us, haven't we? 
to the metazoans developed in us from the protozoans, from the egg. Okay? Now they said that was spontaneous. Why do we do that? Because we've got the information and the programming to do it, haven't we? But to say then that a, an amoeba could develop spontaneously, a protozoan, could develop spontaneously to a metazoan, is to say that a program could arise spontaneously by random events. Now, have you ever known a program to arise by random events? If you go and tell that to the Bell Telephone Company or to Hewlett Packard or anybody like that around here, uh, you go and tell them that, they'll have you certified on the spot and they'll take you home in a, in a little police car and put you in chains and that'll be it. Because the only way you can get a metazoa out of a protozoan is by putting in an extra program, just as we've got it in us. And then we became human beings. You see, a woman never bears a crocodile, does she? Nor does she bear an octopus, nor does she bear a cauliflower. Why? Because the program for a cauliflower is different to the program for a baby. For the, from the program for that's the reason. So if you say this, number four, the metazoans developed out of the protozoans, you're saying that the program necessary to make a protozoan, to make a metazoan out of a protozoan, that that program arises by spontaneous events, random events. That is, you're saying that programming takes place spontaneously. Does it? Well, if it doesn't, we should have to put a zero down for that one, don't we? It doesn't, believe me. Otherwise, there's no reason why a woman shouldn't bear a cauliflower. Because a cauliflower's got the same type of genetic code as we have, but the information on it, the programming on it, is different, that's all. So you've got to have the right programming to get that to go. And if you think the right programming occurs by this, that's the whole trouble with Darwinism. They didn't know anything about programming in those days. Darwin, you see, lived over 100 years ago, and he didn't know anything about programming. So the poor old man had to make his theories up out of his own head, with the consequence that he made some bad mistakes. Well, it's time today that we corrected those mistakes. We don't want to hurt the old man, he just didn't know better. But uh, we just want to say that you can't believe that today because we know about programming. Now, the fifth one is the invertebrates are phylogenetically interrelated. Now, what does that mean? It means the, fly, the invertebrates are the flies, uh, the ants, the termites, uh, the octopuses, the squids, and all those sorts of gentlemen. Uh, you know all about them, don't you? You do know what invertebrates are. I shall have to have a talk to your teacher about this afterwards if you don't. Well, now, to say they're all interrelated, uh, to say that a fly is related to, uh, to an octopus is very nice. The genetic code by which it stores its information may be related, but the program on that genetic code is certainly not very near anyway. So I should say this, that if we say that, can we prove it? Well, if you say, because I say that the fly is related to a termite, therefore it must be true, I think that is a known sequitur, and it doesn't follow. So I'm going to put down for the five here, because I've got a lot to do. How's the time? I've got a lot to do. We're going to put down a, a cross there. There's not a single point that we found that's right until, to, until now. Let's get on to number six. The vertebrates are phylogenetically related to the invertebrates. 
That is, the animals with a backbone are related phylogenetically. You know what phylogenetically means, don't you? In their ancestral tree, in their ancestral tree, they bred from the invertebrates, is what it means. Well, I don't know. You can say that, if you like, but there's no proof of this. And if you can't repeat it uh, in the lab, I should say, well, why talk to its bunkum? Because uh, all I'm interested is in things you can repeat. And the lab is a scientist. Well, now, I can't repeat it, so I'll put six down and say, on that basis of who said it's got to be repeatable, to be scientific? Who said that? Tom? You did. Okay, you're right. You're quite right. Sir Karl Popper put it in nice scientific language. He didn't language, didn't he? The philosopher, uh, the old man. He said that evolution is a metaphysical research program. And because he used that nasty word metaphysical, they were very, 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 very annoyed with him. So when they tackled him on, he says, will you repeat it? And then I say, it isn't metaphysical. And as they couldn't repeat it, he said, well, okay, let it stand. It's all zero. Now, let's go on to the seventh then, six, seven. Uh, the vertebrates are phylogenetically related. Now, if you look at the vertebrates with their system of backbone, you see, and arms, forelimbs, and eyes, and all the rest of it, they're pretty alike, aren't they? I mean, let's own up to it. We are like the monkeys, aren't we? You've only got to go outside the chimpanzee cage and see it with their antics to see how they plague one another and uh, throw things at human beings when there's mud around to splash their white clothes, you see, and they delight, they howl with laughter when they make you dirty and, and you have to run for it. I mean, there is a lot of likeness there, but uh, I wouldn't say that likeness is enough to prove that we're interrelated, is it? Uh, you all know General Montgomery, don't you? The British general who worked with Eisenhower and, uh, you know, won the war. Um, he had a double. You know what a double is, don't you? Somebody who looked exactly like him. And what the British did, they took this double who looked exactly like Montgomery, and they trained him to make all the funny little things that Montgomery did. You see, he'd... Uh, twiddle his hair and uh, twiddle his moustache, and he didn't have a moustache, but he'd do all those little things that some people do. And they trained this double to do all those things, and they dressed him up in a general's uniform. And just before they were going to go across the channel and do the invasion, they sent this double of Montgomery uh, with a nice political send-off, they sent him down to Libya. So the Germans would think that Montgomery wasn't going to do any invading, he was gone down to Libya, and they, 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 they swallowed it. And they weren't ready for the invasion because they thought that Montgomery was, in, was, was down in the Mediterranean. Now listen, you wouldn't say, therefore, because the double looked exactly like Montgomery, that he was his brother, would you? You may look alike, but that's no proof of phylogenetic relationship. Okay? We right? Would you accept that one? Well, okay, I'll accept it. Uh, <laughs> you need to do it if you don't want to. But um, I think that uh, there's no real scientific proof for that. So we've got the seven main postulates on which the whole evolutionary theory is built. And not one of them, as Professor Kirkert, who is Professor of Evolution, 
and is an evolutionist himself, he says there's not one of them is scientific. Now you ought to have the book here for your kids to read, this is required reading for the evolutionary course. It's a good book to read. Now, if you take a can of sardines, and I'll go back to the can of sardines, because they're very useful little animals, not only to eat, but uh, to understand. Uh, they're in a can, aren't they? And they're sealed. They're hermetically sealed, aren't they? Do you think that the conditions in a can of sardines, a room temperature, would be capable of bearing life? Well, they were alive at one time. So at one time, they must have been capable of bearing life, mustn't they? What's the only thing that's gone wrong with them? Well, you've killed them. <laughs> they starved them to death, you see. They starved them so their stomachs were empty. And when they starved them, they sterilized them and put them in cans. Now, you would think that if there's any form of inorganic, non-living matter, sardines would be the ideal material to make life from, wouldn't you? Because they're once alive. Once hopping little fish, weren't they? Are you in agreement with me here? Because I need your agreement on this. We must go forward by agreement. Uh, if you put those sardines into a can, the evolutionists say that what made life on Earth was the rays of the sun reacting on inorganic matter which produced life, that financed life. That's what they say. As long as the sun shone, you see, uh, on the inorganic matter, there's a chance from the energy of the sun to increase the order of the inorganic matter right up to the order of living matter. Okay? That's what they say. Now then let's have a look at our sardines. They're in a can. Is a can physically an open system or not? Now, you know what an open system is, don't you? An open system is a system in physics which will allow energy in and energy out. Do you think that energy can get into a sardine can? And can it get out? Well, of course it can, because you can heat it up. You can make a, a sardine can up boiling in, with boiling water up to 100 degrees centigrade, can't you? It's easy. So you can get energy in. Now, can you get it out again? Put it in the, in the deep freezer, and you'll get it down to minus 50 degrees centigrade, won't you? So you can get your energy in and out. So you're in the same position as the inorganic matter on the, uh, on the Earth, aren't you? The sun shines on the Earth, and they say from the sunshine on the Earth, that will give the energy which is necessary to make life from inorganic matter. Okay? Are we agreed with one another on that? Now, We've made billions of uh, sardine cans, haven't we? Billions of them. Gosh, you see them making sardine cans up in Norway, up in Bergen, where we used to live. It, it's amazing. Now, each sardine can then is an experiment in biogenesis. Because if energy can get into those cans, and if energy can get out, they're an open system. And according to evolution, you ought to get life out of it. Now, we're perfectly convinced, and your Ministry of Health and Ministry of Ag Agriculture is perfectly convinced that in a can of sardines, here we are, there's our can of sardines, in a can of sardines, life will, here's the little corpses of the 
the sardines in there, you see. I'm a bit of a Picasso, but uh, I've never made the fortune that Picasso made from doing that sort of thing. Um, here they are in the, in the cans of sardines, and the energy's going in, and the energy's going out. Okay, now we've done that billions of times. Do you think that this has ever been produced that way? Light has ever come out of a can of sardines? It ought to, which is right, isn't it? I mean, you've done it billions of times, and you've never happened. Why? Well, look, I'll tell you this, that nobody in your Department of Agriculture or in the Department of Agriculture of any civilized nation believes in the remotest way that that is possible. Because if they thought that life would start from sardine cans and you couldn't control what sort of life, they'd be terrified that some bug would arise which would kill us all. They are with cloning. They're afraid that we should produce something which will be toxic to us from inorganic matter and, and kill us all. So they won't let us do certain forms of cloning. But you see, they're so convinced that sardine cans will never produce anything in the way of life that they allow you to can sardines. So they don't believe the onus of the sardine factories. They don't believe in postulate number one. Otherwise, they'd forbid the canning of sardines because they're perfect, a perfect medium to produce biogenesis, aren't they? Now look, uh, we've got just a minute to do this. Uh, how could you get life out of a can of sardines? You can't get it by putting in energy, because if you put in energy, you make it hot. Then they, they get off taste, don't they? They don't taste nice. So you can't get it out of putting life uh, energy in, and nor can you do it by cooling them down. Because uh, they've had some cans of sardines, you know, found up in the Antarctica, or also in Arctica, which have been in the ice for a hundred years. You know, when people died, like Scott and company, uh, they found their food stores, and they're perfectly fresh. They're perfectly all right. They were in sardine cans, you see. So they're all right. There's nothing happened to them. And they're so sure that nothing will happen to them that no life will be produced which might be toxic to us, that they allow canning. When they stop canning and say life might arise that way, then I'll believe that they believe in evolution. Not before. When they say, look here, boys, these sardine cans are ideal to make some form of life which will kill us all, but we won't allow it, then I believe that they believe in evolution. But in actual fact, all the canning industry is sure that life never arises that way, otherwise they'd never allow it. If there were one in a million chance of killing people and getting bacteria formed or other organisms which would kill us, they'd never allow it. Okay? So in their hearts, they say they believe in evolution. And in their practice, they demonstrate that they certainly don't. Okay? Now listen, this is the practical part, and with that I finish. Uh, how could you get life out of a can of sardines? How could you do it, practically, and scientifically so you could repeat it? Yes, sir. Well, uh, that would be swindling a bit. I say, how are you going to get... Uh, I always like to be absolutely fair in what I do, even with those people I don't like, you know. I try to be fair, because otherwise they've got a reason not for not liking me. How would you do it, without swindling? Come on, we haven't got much time. So you have to get those cogwheels turning around, yes. Pardon? 
Yeah, but they're all dead. How could they, how could they lay eggs if they're dead? You're right. You're getting on. Come along. We're getting nearer. We're getting warmer, as they say in England. Uh, how would you do it? Well, I'll give you an idea. And if you say the idea is good, say, hi. And if you think the idea is bad, say, no. Okay? Uh, if you were to put in to this can of sardines uh, a DNA molecule, which had all the information necessary to make Escherichia coli. Now, you all know what Escherichia coli is, don't you? It's one of the, oh, you do. If you don't know that, I shall complain to your teacher. <laughs> if you were to put in a DNA molecule, which has all the information to make an Escherichia coli, which is a bacterium out of your digestive tract, so you couldn't digest your lunch without them. They're, they're the most useful little gentlemen. Um, if you were to put that DNA molecule in, which has the E. coli information on it, a whole bag of tricks here would spring into life and would produce Escherichia coli. That's the way it's done. All you do is you insert the information necessary for life, you insert the programs, which in each case we didn't have in Darwinism, and if you do that, then life will just simply blow the can up, okay? Now, you could do it another way, couldn't you? If you were in a sterile bubble, like some poor children that have got diseases, you see, that uh, they can't get the immune system to work, if you were to give the sardines to a person in a sterile bubble, he would take, see, would take the sardines and convert them into human life because the program is there. So if you were to put, theoretically, theoretically, if you were to put a human egg in that and simulate a human uterus, you'd get a baby out. So what is lacking here is not the inorganic matter. It's not the fact that the temperature is right or wrong. What is lacking is the program for life, okay? So if you want to get life, the way to do it is to take matter, M, okay, and add to it T, campus, time, and add to it E, there's your sunlight if you want E, okay, and add to it a program information storage and retrieval system, and then you get our life. You get out the cell. That's the way it's done. But you see, Darwin says this. This is to reduce it to something very simple. Darwin says this matter plus time plus energy equals the cell. So his formula is not wrong. What, 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 what do you gather from that formula? What's the correct term? It's deficient. It's deficient. So the Darwinian formula is not so wrong as it is deficient, okay? So if you add to the Darwinian formula the program, which you can call Logos if you like, because Logos is a concept and a program is a concept, okay? You all right? If you add that, whole bag of tricks in order. And the error of Darwinism is so simple that even the great brains very often haven't seen it. 
It's a deficient formula, not wrong. Don't go for it because it's wrong, because it isn't. But it doesn't give you what you want. What you want is the logos or the information to do it with. And once you do that, and supply an egg, say even of a butterfly, and put it in the sardine can and nothing else, you'll convert the sardines into butterflies, won't you? And they'll flatter, flutter around, you see? Have no difficulty with your cabbages in future years because the butterflies will come and help you. Okay? Now, are there any questions you might like to ask about that? Because it's quarter past uh, one, I see. Have you understood me? Could you give a resume? Uh, your teacher, I will ask you to test them and ask them to give an outline of what I said. And if they can do that, I would ask you to give those that do it really well, to give them, do you call them an A? Or do you call it, uh, do you call it a one? Do you, what do you call it here, your, your top mark? Do you call it an A, do you? Well, I would recommend him, because you're such decent people, to uh, give you an A if you can give a reasonable outline of what I've told you this morning. Uh, I said there were two answers to what I said this, this morning. One was a, and the other one was a, so where have we got to now? Which is it? Did you understand me? Okay, there you are, your teacher, you've heard, and uh, they seem to have understood, so I've delivered my soul from destruction in that I've told you that evolution is a totally unscientific concept. You can't repeat it. You ought to be able to repeat it if it's scientific, and you can't. The only way to do it is to put that in, the information, which Darwin refused to put in. He refused to have any concept put in, or any logos put in. And he took it out and hoped that the formula would stand up without it. And it won't. It works perfectly with it, but it doesn't without it. Right, ladies and gentlemen, if you have any questions, you can ask them. Yes, sir. You can repeat it. We've done it. You see, you can repeat it as often as you like. Uh, here, for example, uh, if you want to make life, Charles Spiegelman did that in Chicago 20 years ago. He took all the matter which was necessary to make life, and he put in the biochemical know-how, the program, and out came a living virus, if you can call a virus living. But the virus attacked the cell, and lived there symbiotically with it. So what he did was took the sardines, as it were, the material, and he put in the program by hand. He didn't put it in as a spore. He put it in by hand, chemically, step for step. And the result was, oh, he did work two years on that with all his assistants. He was a brilliant man. Put the program in step by step. Not, syn not synthetically as a spore, but just simply by hand, stage by stage. And the result was a, a virus. Now, Arthur Kornberg did the same thing. One of them did it with an RNA molecule, another one did it with a DNA molecule, both of which they synthesized. And the result was life. So we can repeat it as often as you like. Now, the second thing is this, that Darwin said that if you wanted to get a new species, you did it by sex. That is, you bred the thing. Well, we've never done it by sex. 
But what we have done is done it by cloning. If you take Escherichia coli, here's the round Escherichia coli, and here's the DNA molecule. If you open the information storage and retrieval system so that it's open here, can you all see that, more or less? If you open it, then you put inside the program for a human insulin gene. There's the program for the human insulin. You put it in. You get a new form of Escherichia which makes Escherichia coli, but also makes human insulin. And that's how human insulin is made today. So you've made a new species of Escherichia coli by putting in the new program. Now, if you think that programs are made by random processes, then I have you all certified. You've got to have the program put in, and then the thing will live. So this is a scientific fact. You can repeat it as often as you like. Darwin was wrong because he didn't know. But it's wrong to go on teaching people what he thought was right because he didn't know that he was wrong. It's wrong to go on doing that. That's all. And there you have it. Great lecture. It kind of ends, you know, in, a, in an odd way, but there you go. I mean, so, I mean, literally, uh, Dr. Wilder-Smith's point is, is that uh, evolutionary theories believe in this thing called biogenesis, that all of a sudden, boom, there's there's life, okay? And yet we have literally a scientific experiment that has been repeated billions of times. Billions. And what is that scientific experiment? You can think of canned sardines or canned tuna or you know, yeah, I don't, can, does spam work here? Is that even real? Um, but the idea is, is that we've got canned foods that were formerly alive, you know, and, you know, tuna or sardines or whatever, and you can add, you can add energy to it, and no life ever, ever, no new life ever crops up from that, ever. And this is a scientific experiment that has been repeated billions of times without a single deviation in the results. Uh-huh. That in and of itself proves that biogenesis, this belief that all human life, that all life originated from a primordial ooze and an amoeba that sprang to life just out of nowhere. Nope, not it. It's just not even remotely makes sense. So that's my counter argument. Uh, to uh, the stuff that's being put out by the Biologos uh, folks. And that's put out by a man who uh, was a brilliant scientist. So, what'd you think? <laughs> I'd love to get your feedback. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. It takes time and effort and, and you know money to be able to put these programs together. And if you don't already support us financially, please visit our website and support us. And for those of you who have been supporting us financially, let me just say thank you. Thank you. We cannot do what we do without your help. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.